Welcome to the Vibrant Workplace podcast, proudly supported by NI Job Finder, the place where you'll find vibrant workplaces offering not just jobs, but quality careers. On this show, we explore how companies can build vibrant workplaces that attract, engage, and retain talented people who have a positive experience of work that benefits both employers and employees. I'm Craig Thompson, founder of Vibrant Talent. We help organizations become vibrant workplaces where people want to take jobs, make a positive impact with their work, and feel like it was worthwhile doing it. Today, I'm with Gavin Hendry. Gavin is Chief Operating Officer of Construction and Procurement Law Specialist, Quig Golden. Having served in the British Army for over 20 years, Gavin knows firsthand the value veteran hires can offer businesses. He's come on the show to challenge some of the assumptions people have about those transitioning from the Army, and also to offer tips for what transitioning veterans can do to help themselves. Welcome to the show, Gavin. Tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do, and importantly, why this topic matters to you. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Craig. I think this is a great opportunity to try and explain to some of your listeners the value that veterans can bring to their business, very real value, and also, as you say, dispel some of those myths. Who am I? I, as my LinkedIn bio points out, uh, Gavin Hendry, MBA, MSc, Chartered Manager, Chartered HR Practitioner, Chartered Company Secretary and Governance Professional, utterly hopeless swimmer. But someone who spent 20 years in the army having only really intended to do three or four. So I joined the army to leave. I joined to get some skills, having been in the TA whilst I was working in insurance and then banking in Glasgow. And thought, I fancy a change of direction, change of career, and the army could equip me with some really tangible skills that I could use in a civilian employer a few years later. Those skills were intended to be in the electronics world. I joined as a telecommunications technician, so was initially trained to fix the Army's version of a mobile phone network, which was to say a bunch of radio equipment and a group of vehicles that was probably the better part of 30 or 40 years old at that time. But at a fairly early stage, got picked up for my sort of innate leadership ability. was then selected to go to Santos to learn to be an officer, then took a further change of direction and left the Royal Corps of Signals to join the Army's Staff and Personnel Support Branch, which effectively does all the HR, finance, business administration, governance. And so across my career, really learned a host of skills, far more than I thought I would, that aligned quite neatly with how you need to run a business. Someone once said to me that if you took all of the assets of the British Army and added them up, it would be a FTSE 100 company and probably a top 10 at that by asset valuation. Not entirely sure we would have run it the same way, but you know it's got all the same functions, all the same things that a big global organisation has, and therefore, therefore they have to be managed and operated in a similar way by people with similar skills. So, how does that translate to what I do now? Quig Golden is a much smaller organisation. There's 27 of us in Belfast, London, and Dublin, but we still have a need to look after our people and recruit and retain talent. HR that sits with me. You know, in one of my last jobs in the army, I was effectively the army's HR director in Northern Ireland. We have to manage our cash flow and you know do all our budgets and think about all the things that are all things finance to firm. I have a role to play in that. Business development, we have to you know market ourselves and go out and get new clients, just as you do in the army when you go to a new area. You need to find out who the bad guys are and who the good guys are and who you can work with and who you maybe need to deal with in some other way exactly the same kind of skill set that maps across to finding and winning new clients and new customers and then obviously all the sort of corporate governance the compliance which a law firm there is a lot of and it's spread across three legal jurisdictions so there are three sets of regulations three sets of law societies to keep happy so i have to keep a weather eye on all of that and then obviously the buildings the infrastructure that we have sits with me as much as the it inside it as well so A lot of plates that I often say are spinning at different heights and the plates are sometimes different sizes, so require a different touch. And occasionally it feels like the 360 degrees around me and sometimes the lights go out. But I'm fortunate that I've got a good team around about me, my office manager and my finance manager, who I refer to as my left and right crutch, and they make sure that if a plate is about to stop spinning, they point it out to me. But yeah, all of the skills that I use in my current role were effectively learned in the army. So that's a bit of a brief synopsis. Why does this topic matter to me? I'll give you an example of why it matters. Aside from the fact that I had a role to play in supporting veterans before I left the army, so the Armed Forces Community Covenant was something that wasn't particularly commonplace here in Northern Ireland. And I helped a guy that many listeners from Northern Ireland will know, Doug Beatty. Before he was leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, he was just a councillor, and he took it upon himself to try and get his council to adopt the Armed Forces Community Covenant. 
And I then helped him with that and with other councils doing the same. And I could see that actually there was a very real need across a whole host of support services for veterans. But I was also seeing the challenge that veterans face, particularly in Northern Ireland, in terms of selling themselves and getting work. Someone said to me when I was leaving that they thought I was mad trying to get my first job in Northern Ireland. I should just go to London. I said, why? They said, there's a far more established network of ex-military in London and they're quite open and honest about who they are and what they were. And therefore, when they then do almost inevitably add value, people kind of correlate future guys and girls from the military as being of a similar, you know, cut from the same cloth, if you like. And so it was much easier to say, I've been to or I've done this. And people correlate that with the degree of quality in London, not so much in Northern Ireland. So I'm quite keen to impress upon folk that there is a whole world of opportunity out there and that they've got something to offer. And equally, that employers should take a look that it's not all about digging holes and marching to the horizon and back. The old Monty Python sketch of all the soldiers on the parade square and the sergeant saying, does anybody get anything better to do? Well, I'd rather actually be reading my book. Okay, then off you go. We don't do that. And if I could leave that kind of why with an example, I was talking to my sister a couple of years ago and she was talking about a guy that had joined her company in Glasgow. She's a transport manager. It was pretty obvious that he'd been in the Royal Regiment of Scotland, an infantry soldier. And she said, he's got that thing that all the military guys get when they leave. Which I thought was a really strange thing to say. What, a pension? A, a veteran's badge? A testimony? What are you on about? She said, no, that thing you get with your head. Genuinely confused me. I said, what thing that everybody gets with their head? She's that thing where you're a bit messed up from what you've done in the army. Lynn, do you mean PTSD? Yeah, yeah, he's got that. Said, we don't all swap our uniform for that. We don't get issued it on the last day. What, what made you think everybody gets that? Oh, I don't know. I just thought he's all kind of got it because of Afghanistan and Iraq. No, you know, so let me dispel that myth up front straight away. Not everyone has PTSD from what they've done in the army. And if anything, the guys that do have it, there is a much better support network around them to help them cope with it. Yeah, I think there are definitely some myths worth exploring and unpacking as we go through this this morning to put people's minds at rest that not everyone who has served in the military is mad, bad or dangerous or unhinged quite the reverse. They are a very well-adjusted cohort of people with a huge array of skills that are immediately transferable to a business. What they don't necessarily have is the language of business. They don't know any of your listeners who are project managers will understand what I mean when I say a Gantt chart. Pretty common thing in project management. The exact same thing happens in the military planning world, except we call it a sync matrix, a synchronization matrix, but it's the same document. You can put the two together and it would be the same thing. And there's a whole raft of other things that it's called one thing in the military, but it's the exact same thing in a business. They just happen to use a different name for it. So, yeah, I'm really quite passionate that I think there's a lot of employers are missing tricks in terms of employing ex-military veterans, if you will, because they don't know the skills that they have. And as I say, we can explore that in a bit more detail. But equally, the veterans themselves are missing the trick by not being able to sell themselves properly because they don't know what it is that the employer's looking for in the first place. It's a bit chicken and egg. Yeah, that's a fairly lengthy introduction. Look, there's so much to unpack from what you've already said, Gavin. I think, first of all, that's an incredible example around the PTSD. You know, on one hand, I'm going to ask you where you think that comes from. My assumption to begin with would be that I suppose TV and movies probably have a big part to play in that because anytime you see anybody in a TV show or in a movie that's transitioning from a military career into, you know, the business world, they always seem to have that. And therefore, you know, people's perception is probably skewed by what they see on the TV. But what's your perception of where does that kind of assumption come from? I think you're right. I think it's definitely the media that we consume. So whether that is film, you know, immediately trying to think of an example, but you're absolutely right, Craig. There'll be a variety of films that other people will be screaming as they listen to this because they know full well the characters having flashbacks or whatever it is. I also think that when it comes to supporting veterans, there's probably an assumption that all veterans, if they're not with PTSD, then they must be homeless because that's all we really hear about. We don't hear about veterans who have been hugely successful. One of the reasons that I decided to leave the military, I read an article. If your listeners Google The Atlantic, which is a journal published in America, but The Atlantic, an author called Tim Kane, and if they can remember the title of his article, it was something to the effect of why are our best officers leaving? Tim Kane was a former US Air Force officer turned economist who wrote an article in The Atlantic Journal that the US military had a problem retaining its best talent. And he went on, and I think from memory it was like an, almost a quip, but it was a sort of line that was an embellishment of his overall story that there were however many CEOs of listed companies in America that had a military background, but the ratio of military CEOs 
exceeded the ratio of you know citizens that joined the military. In other words, it was out of counter with what you would expect in terms of the demographic. And I think he was kind of picked apart on his article and he then wrote a book called Bleeding Talent where he did a lot more science on it. And as I was reading the book, I was just thinking, this is me. The biggest takeaway was that the US military and the UK military are very similar, but they train their officers in very similar ways and they train them ultimately to be very entrepreneurial, which I hadn't thought about until I was reading this book. You're trained to be a problem solver. Well, ultimately, that's what entrepreneurs do. They identify gaps in the market and they come up with solutions to that. So that mindset is very much there. So, yeah, I think go back to the sort of PTSD point, there's a huge amount of negativity out there that people see and not enough books like Bleeding Talent or copies of the Atlantic lying around for them to consume and see that there's a different narrative, hence the value in something like this. Yeah, it's definitely an issue. I think another issue as well, particularly for people of a certain generation, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's the same age as me, and he was saying, you know, call me cynical, but it used to be that army recruiting officers offices were in run-down areas. And I immediately thought of, you know, some in Glasgow that, yeah, there were in areas where people maybe didn't have any other alternative but to join the army. So I think there is still this idea that if you join the military, you're maybe a wee bit lacking in education or lacking in other opportunities. I've served with soldiers, not officers, but soldiers who joined despite having been to university and having degrees because they wanted to serve their country or they wanted to go and fight in Afghanistan or they wanted to learn a particular set of skills in a particular environment for a few years that they knew they couldn't necessarily get elsewhere. Or if they did, they certainly wouldn't be getting paid for it. They would have to pay for it. So you do get, nowadays, quite well-educated people joining the military. But again, where do you see that? So yeah, I think going back to the question, there is too much of the negative press and not enough of the positive press because that's not a good news story for the BBC or whoever else to put out there. It probably doesn't make quite as good a film. I know that you talked about your reason for joining the military, Gavin. You talked about you know how you wanted to acquire skills. And, you know, when you think about it, and I'm sure you have thought about this, but I guess so many people want to take a career somewhere where they have a clearly defined career plan. If you like a sort of a progress plan for them where they can grow themselves, develop themselves. And when you compare most businesses, I would say almost all businesses with the military, can any of them compare in terms of you start here on day one, but if you play your part, here's where you can get to and here's how you can develop along the way. Does any business have that kind of structure? I'm really pleased you've asked that question because one business can. There's a business called Quick Golden that can definitely do it <laughs> because I wrote what we called our pathway to partner because you're right. That was one of the things I identified with my sort of HR hat on fairly early on is we couldn't say to a young junior associate, new law graduate or quantity surveyor who was coming into the world of construction law where he or she could be in 10, 15, 20 years time. So I crafted that in a fairly simple diagrammatic fashion but then with a bit of meat to the bones of here's what you need to do to progress because you know that was commonplace in the military you know some of it the progression was simply well you've been a second lieutenant for a year so you're now a lieutenant and then it was a certain number of years to get to captain and you knew what you needed to do and your report needed to say certain things and so on to major and such and such I mean when I left people said to me you're mad you're throwing away lieutenant colonel because that was my next stepping stone and my first opportunity to be considered for that was only 10 months away. I ultimately, I didn't want it. I read a quote that said, if the path to a goal is clear, it's not much of a goal. That kind of said something to me that being almost certain of promotion to lieutenant colonel at some stage didn't make it as worthwhile as perhaps promoting to major at my first look. The year the army throttled the number of promotions at first look to just 10%. So I was in the top 10% of my cohort. That was an achievement but further promotions would have been either A, not much of an achievement, or B, not at all likely because I was slightly older and the army would want to get slightly more mileage out of someone younger. Not necessarily a written down policy because that would start to smack a base discrimination, but it is definitely a thing. Subsequent promotions get scored based on how many vacancies there are and then the year of birth does come into it. So yeah, the, the future for me just wasn't really quite there. But you're right, it was a very attractive thing to be able to look forward X number of years and be able to kind of potentially plan out where your career could take you. So I thought that was important enough for us to do it. Do other businesses do it? I don't know. I've certainly had conversations with Deloitte and PwC in the past when I was leaving the army and looking for jobs. And I kind of got the sense that there was a very real career management piece to what they do and what they offer. And certainly when I come across some senior people on LinkedIn in the big four, they've all you know, you can see the progression in their LinkedIn profiles. So I'd imagine there are some firms that do it. Certainly from a strategic HR point of view, it's worth doing. And if you are an employer that hasn't thought about that, you're, you're probably missing a massive retention trick. Certainly I know that 
reading around sort of Gen Z, millennials, all the different sort of generations, we all come at this from a slightly different perspective, a slightly different upbringing, slightly different experiences, and therefore we want slightly different things. But ultimately, people still want a job that inspires enthuses, motivates them, and pays the bills to do the things at the weekends that we all want to do. So why wouldn't you want to know how that's going to pan out in the years to come? It's an interesting point that you've made about, you know, the whole idea of guaranteed progression in terms of guaranteed promotions, though, because it's something I've been thinking about recently. And I was having this conversation with a couple of people recently. Specifically, this conversation was geared towards the software world. But it sort of feels to me now, like, if the idea for a promotion previously was to reward you know, dedication and hard work and excellence. And it wasn't something that was guaranteed. You only got it if you had earned it. It feels to me like, particularly in the software space now, a promotion seems like almost an expectation and even maybe a demand in some cases for time served rather than being what it was originally supposed to be. I don't think that's the case in other industries just as much, but I almost feel like in order to try and reward people and retain people, Software companies have now just decided everybody becomes a senior and then everybody becomes a manager because that's our only way to reward them. I think we have to think bigger picture about ways to reward people beyond just promotions because the promotion is not right for everybody as well. So that's just something that you know I think is worth touching on. I think you you know you gave a quote there about how basically is it still a reward if it's guaranteed? I think the status matters quite a fair bit. I think one of the sort of aspects of social media is that people like to show off. They like to show the world that they're doing well. I mean, somebody once said to me, you don't ever see somebody crying and, you know, with their head in their hands on Facebook. It's always the sort of success stories. And so, you know, titles do matter. The badges matter. Um, you certainly see that in the military. I did read something a number of years ago about how the Americans were recognising the problems they had with people being judged based on the various badges that they had on for, you know, whatever courses they'd done. You know, before you'd opened your mouth, people had worked out that you were physically fit because you'd done this course and that you were a parachutist and that you'd seen combat and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I think giving people titles, and if that's what promotion is these days, is important to some. I think everything in the world evolves, but I think people will become more inclined to have their skills recognised by being treated in a way that is more aligned with just allowing them to get on and do what they want to do rather than be micromanaged. Certainly, that would be a thing from an employer's perspective. Why would you want to employ a veteran? Another myth, if we can jump into dispelling another myth, is that veterans need to be told what to do because you're sure they've worked in an environment where they've been ordered to do things or that they are only capable of giving brackets, barking orders. I was certainly asked by two separate companies, both of whom have got a huge presence in the veteran employment market. I won't name them because it would be embarrassing to do so, but both of them asked me at interviews five years ago, what would I change about my management style was what one of them said. And I said, I'm not sure what you think I would need to change, but the question was clearly loaded. And the guy said, well, you know, you're obviously coming from a very regimented and disciplined background. So how would you adapt that? And another simply said to me that they saw me as a risk coming in at manager level because of my regimented background. And therefore they need their managers to be able to think on their feet and think for themselves. And I wouldn't be able to do that. Despite the fact I held an MBA, I was a chartered manager. I was the Army's most senior HR advisor, if you like, in Northern Ireland, a 4,500 strong organisation. I had a team of 100 spread across nine different units that I commanded on a day-to-day basis. And this individual thought that I needed to be told what to do. I mean, it was utterly ridiculous. The Army's command philosophy is known as mission command. And it's telling people what to do, but not how to do it, because it's physically impossible on the battlefield for a commander to be sat over the shoulder of every single one of his or her subordinate commanders and tell them whether they should be crawling up that ditch or running along that tree line. They've got to leave that to the training and the initiative and the knowledge and the judgment of the local commanders that are that little bit further forward and spread across. That's just the way a battle has to work. And therefore, you have to train people and equip people with the skills to do that. That's something I have noticed in business is lacking that degree of trust to just let folk get on with it. So I think people will want more of that. And I think any business that's got veterans who are already well-versed in that kind of way of working will thrive. But yeah, that's definitely another myth that veterans need to be told what to do. The only way they can speak to people is by shouting at them. That's another one I've had. I was an officer. I had people who shouted for me. I didn't, you know, that major sort that out. 
didn't need to do any shouting. <laughs> I started reading, I really had to shout. It was more of a very wise, informed word that corrected the action and brought the individual back in line. But yeah, that's another thing. I mean, that example that you gave there of your experience in the recruitment process with those companies and the assumptions that they made about you, and you used the word risk. First of all, I would say that the bigger risk there is for them making those assumptions and demonstrating that prejudice in a recruitment process. But, you know, it's interesting because I do a lot of leadership development programs and almost every time I, you know, bring up the topic of autocratic leadership and, you know, we talk about it being a command and control style of leadership. I say to people, what do you know about autocratic leadership? What examples have you seen of it? Almost every time people will say, well, it's basically a military style of leadership. So it's great that you have made that point that that's actually not how things happen within the military. And I totally understand when you say you can micromanage, you know, if you've got people out there in the battlefield or you've got people out there, you know, on specific missions, etc., you need people who are capable of making incredibly important decisions for themselves. I mean, literally, so you literally. You can't be like there doing it for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Certainly autocratic. I started a lecture when I was at Staff College once from a guy who was sort of explaining to us the difference in his view of command, leadership and management. Because everybody talks about leadership and management and, you know, are they sort of opposite sides of the same coin? You know, they do go hand in glove, but they're very different things. But where does command then come into it? And the example he gave of command and his, his best sort of example of it was he was outside one of the train stations on the day of the 7-7 bombings in London and the smoke was billowing out the front door. People were sort of going, well, what do we do? We shouldn't go in, but should we go in and help? And as you can probably picture the scene, the front door was covered with people and the first ambulance crew turned up and one of the ambulance operators just shouted, get out of the effing way. And he said, the siege is parted. He said, that was command. So there are occasions in any walk of life and absolutely in the military where i refer to it as jfdi just effing do it you know i'm not asking you i am telling you get up and take that machine gun post you can imagine that's not a daily occurrence that's not the normal way of doing business it's an extremist form of leading and managing people and absolutely not the routine but again why hire a veteran well because they can actually do that 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 is a tool in their toolbox and it's not something that would be commonplace elsewhere But I think the adaptability is probably the single biggest skill that veterans have. The ability to shift between leadership styles, to understand that there is one way to do it. You can get away with being laissez-faire now and again. You can get away with being democratic now and again. Yeah, if you use it rarely and sparingly, you can get away with being autocratic as long as it's the right style of leadership for that particular time, thing, whatever. So yeah, I would certainly say that if anyone thinks autocratic leadership is military leadership, they are very, very wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make another good point. It's another tool in your toolkit. I think sometimes people make the mistake of assuming that autocratic and bullying are the same thing. They're two different things. It's never okay to bully, but autocratic, that that directive, you know, instructive approach to leadership, there is a time and there is a place for that. But I think if you've built that trust, and I'm sure you had a strong bond with, you know, the people that you were working with in the military, et cetera. But if you've got that trust, if you've got that bond, I think people will take that directive approach to leadership at times when they understand it in the context of the circumstances. But of course, if it was all the time, then particularly in business, people don't yeah, want to work in that you kind of... People out. Yeah, exactly. Certainly in times of crisis, I think there's even occasions where people want it. Mm-hmm. Not only need it, yeah. they actually want something yeah, to yeah, take yeah. decision. And say, there is no debate, we're doing this, right? Let's do that. Strong, decisive people. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I wonder is, I think one of the biggest problems in business is we tolerate the asshole in the team for too long, too often. Okay. And I think it's because we have a lot of managers who do the nice stuff, the soft stuff, the friendly stuff, the relationship building stuff well. But when it comes to the difficult stuff, the hard choices and the difficult conversations, they're afraid of them and they shy away from them. And I can imagine that somebody in the military wouldn't shy away from that conversation. So I use a particular phrase for that. My office manager would be my kind of, say, right-hand crutch. She's very good at the soft HR. The box of tissues being softly pushed across the table. I'm programmed to be able to hug two women and two women only, my wife and my daughter. So I don't do the soft HR quite as well. What she would say is, I do the hard HR, the really difficult conversations. I have no problem with that. And the phrase I use for that is that I spent 20 years of my life perfectly comfortable with the idea of shooting someone in the face. Sacking them isn't even remotely the same thing. Yeah. 
I guess that puts it into context. For most of my life, I've been prepared to do much worse to somebody, telling them they're not performing and here are the things that you need to do over the next three months. Dead comfortable with that. So yeah, there's a lot of people. I'm also on the board of the Chartered Management Institute's Northern Ireland region. So we do discuss this kind of stuff in terms of events for our members and, and the stakeholder engagement leads. We're trying to impress upon employers why having chartered managers or people with chartered management institute qualifications is a good thing. There are a lot of accidental managers out there. There are a lot of people who we talked about earlier on just got the title because it was a promotion of some sort and actually haven't got any skills, any training, any real knowledge about what is management, what is leadership, how do you apply it, when, where, and are just bumbling through the day, calling themselves a manager and making a real hash of it. Again, going back to why you would hire a veteran, someone was explaining something to me the other day and they used Maslow's hierarchy of needs as if it was something really scientific and special. And I had to point out that was genuinely a lesson in week one at Sandhurst. Yeah, yeah. It's... You get a huge level of leadership and management training. And more importantly, you get the chance, both in a benign training environment and then for real, to actually apply that knowledge, that theory, and see what works and see what doesn't work. And as I say, that I think is quite unusual in a lot of businesses where there's the old saying, you're always promoted one level above your ability because nobody's quite sure if you've got it. They just, they've seen something in you or you're the last man standing and someone has to do it. Everybody else has left. You're it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny just on that point that you made around, you know, the development of people for these positions. So they've got the skills, they've got the capabilities, they've got the confidence to be able to lead because I actually put two polls up on LinkedIn last week. Okay. And, you know, one was leading into the other. So the first poll was about, you know, when was the right time to start developing people for people management positions? And 85% of people said before they take on the role, which I would totally agree with, you know, we want to be developing them from day one. So they are the next generation of leaders. They're ready to hit the ground running when the formal positions of leadership open up and they get the opportunity. But actually the second poll was then, okay, so from your experience and what you've observed from the companies that you've worked in, when typically do people start getting developed for, you know, these formal positions of leadership? And it was only 6% of people that said they had seen it happening before people move into the position. You go, so 85% of people think it should happen in advance, but only 6% of people have seen it happening in advance. It shocks me if you think, you know, you see the stats from the likes of Gallup, it says, you know, that 70% of the variance in employee engagement scores can be attributed to the relationship between line manager and employee. So we know that role is so incredibly important on our ability to engage our workforce and ultimately on the performance of the business. But we neglect the way that we develop people to become, you know, the future leaders of our companies. That's something that I keep a close eye on in our place because you're always looking to develop people in the way that I was developed. To me, that's just normal. I mean, the stat shocks me and yet it doesn't. I mean, certainly in the army, you were always being groomed for the next level up. So, you know, it wasn't so much of a risk to say ready for promotion to whatever rank because you'd done a bit of it, you'd seen a lot of it. But yeah, I mean, the investment in people, we take it really seriously at Quick Gold and we would spend, you know, five-figure sums on people to put them through various law degrees and whatnot. We do spend a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of resource developing construction lawyers because it's not really mainstream part of the law. Therefore, you don't go and do a law degree and cover a module in construction and procurement law. There is no law degree that I know of in the UK or Ireland that does that. We also quite like to recruit from the engineering trades because they understand the construction piece and it's actually much easier to vote on the law than it is to take a commercial property solicitor and teach them construction law. So facetiously refer to construction law as contract law, but with cement mixed in, you know, that it's fundamentally contract law, but you need to understand the construction side of it. So we do spend a lot of time and money on it. I know that that's not that common, A, in other law firms and B, in, in firms in general. But yeah, how early to prepare people? It's, it can never be too early. There is no such thing as a natural leader, in my view. If there's anything close to a natural leader, it will be someone who has had opportunities that have amounted to development in their younger years, whether that's on the sports Absolutely, pitch or at yeah. school, or they've learned something from their parents at home. We're all products of our environment in one way, shape or form. And those that haven't had those opportunities can then be taught leadership, you know, from, from application later on. And that's certainly what the whole purpose of the Royal Military Academy Santos was. So you you, know, you mentioned those stats and at the same time I'm thinking, God, I spent a year just training to do my first job where I was then given 20 odd people and you know, was responsible for their careers and them on a day basis and, and their lives ultimately on operations. So I find it utterly remarkable that only 6% have ever actually seen that. That's 
I say it's shocking, and yet it's not. Yeah, exactly. So look, when we think about this stuff, and you know, we've talked about some of the assumptions, and obviously you're very passionate that people from you know a military background can bring a lot to business. If I was to say, you know, what's the evidence for this? I think you yourself are a great example of it. You're obviously a very successful person, you know, in your business career, following on from your military career. But what would you say are some of the most important skills and attributes that you developed or acquired in the military that have become incredibly useful to you since you transitioned? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked because I scribbled a bunch of them down yesterday as I was thinking about this. <laughs> there is a lot. I think first and foremost, if anybody had said to me, you know, what is your trade? You know, yeah, I started out as a telecommunications engineer in the army, but my trade has really been fundamentally leadership and management. You know, motivating, enthusing, inspiring people to do better. I'm a big fan of nudge theory. You don't need to just, as I said earlier on, shout orders at people, but you can push them in the direction of just Team Sky, the old cycling team. It's now in Enios Grenadiers. We used to talk about marginal gains. You know, all those little things that just add up to a big advantage. So I think certainly my leadership skills, the army and imagine the rest of the military teach you incredible organisational skills to the point of, you know, they used to have a saying that if you had a pocket that was undone, it wasn't buttoned up, that was obviously bad. Having the mindset of an open pocket could then become a pouch with ammunition that was not secured, which means when you get up from a position to run to another firing position, you go to change magazines, you don't have it because it fell out 100 metres ago and you're not going to get that back. They used to say, you know, it could be a pocket today, but a submarine hatch tomorrow. You can imagine the consequences of a submarine setting sail with a hatch open. So you're taught to really think through the detail. I've said before that one of the strengths that the Army equipped me with is also a bit of a weakness in the commercial world. You're taught, certainly as a young platoon commander, to not just focus on the enemy position in front of you as you're commanding your team of 30 in three sections and manoeuvring them around the battle space and making sure you know where they all are and what's happening. You're also taught to think that if the enemy are anything like us, they'll layer their defences. So there will be second and third positions in depth and off to the flanks that you will then only really encounter once you've dealt with the first. So you can't get sucked into the first position. You've got to keep thinking of the second and third order positions. And if you map that across to how you think things through in business, you're thinking about the second and third order consequences of something when everybody else is still focused on the first. So that's good because you're thinking ahead. It's bad because you're thinking ahead of everyone else and they don't know what page you're on unless you're really clear about where you're coming from. So I think that's a skill. I mentioned adaptability earlier on. Certainly as an officer, you're moved every two years to a different post within the army. So my first officer post was in charge of 20-odd HR and finance specialists in a transport regiment. So understanding how the jobs and how the regiment did its job in support of the army, moving fuel, ammunition, tanks around the battlefields, at one point, we then got selected to go and do the UN tour in Cyprus, so maintaining the, the Green Line and the, the so-called peace between the north and south of the islands. That required a completely different approach, and people had to sort of re-roll. So again, that adaptability comes into it. I finished that job and then went off to train recruits, completely different again for a couple of years. I finished that job, and I then went and did another role looking after the HR and the finance team for an organisation that, when I took it over, was in Afghanistan. So I moved the family back to Northern Ireland on the Sunday, Went into work on the Monday, got issued desert kit and bits and pieces and was on a plane to Afghanistan on the Thursday, I think it was, for three months. 1,200 soldiers that we had under our command and I had, a, a say, a team of 30-odd to lead and manage finance, the governance, the HR, on all that front. And then from there, I was moved to another job where I became a sort of operations officer for Brigade HQ. So again, completely different again, focused on training people to go out to Afghanistan from that, I then moved to Army Headquarters, where I was in charge of, sort of current issues across the HR and business administration space and finding myself rewriting the system that the Army's assurance and governance processes would be measured on. From there, I then went to a different job again, looking at other personnel-related issues, but dealing with things like, day one, my predecessor handed me a thing called Operation London Bridge, which some listeners will know was the events that happened in relation to the death of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth. The things that had to happen in Northern Ireland, no one had gave any thought to. There was no plan for it. So I had to write the plan for that. So you're moving every couple of years and you have to be adaptable. You can't just become a deep specialist in one thing. Certainly before I left, I was speaking to my wife's cousin who is in recruitment. So she currently works for one of the big law firms, but at the time she was working for a more general high street type practice that many people have heard of. And I said to her, you know, what kind of challenges do veterans face when they're sort of trying to enter the market? 
And she said, no, nothing. You're treated exactly like everybody else as far as I'm concerned. There is one thing, though. I said, oh, what's that? She said, they always say, I can do that. In relation to what? She says, that's the thing. It doesn't matter. Anything that the job requires them to do, they say, yeah, I've done that before. I can do that. And that's just not realistic. Why is that? And I had to explain it's because more likely than not, they have done it. They won't necessarily have done it to the depth or the level that you would expect someone whose sole job was that thing, but they will have almost certainly had some exposure to it in a role in the past, and therefore they're not overstating it when they say, yeah, I've done that. So yeah, the adaptability and the breadth of skills that that then gives you, the confidence that that gives you in terms of your ability to move onwards and upwards in different jobs, even though you're not necessarily that thing, but I could be, I think was one of the biggest successes. It was also one of the biggest challenges in terms of leaving the army because I wasn't really sure what I could be. And to that extent, that was a bit of a hindrance. There were certainly jobs that, looking back, I cringe at the thought of actually applying for it because I know that there was no chance I was getting that role. If you don't go for it, you definitely can't get it if you don't go for it, you know? You miss out the opportunities you don't take. So, yeah, there is that. I mean, it's funny, we'll probably come on to it later in terms of the value of networking, but I'll throw a stat out there that I should have checked before I came on I've got a black and red notebook in a drawer somewhere of all the jobs I applied for in 2017 2018 as I was preparing to leave the first job I got selected for interview for was chief operating officer of the Irish FA I mean oh, wow. job okay. stuff probably commercially and, and contractually sort of in terms of my awareness of how contracts were made ironic that my first job was actually then for a contract law specialist but probably at my depth and on those two fields at that level certainly wouldn't be now but of the 120-odd jobs that I applied for and the however many interviews I got, I didn't actually get offered any of them. The two jobs I got offered within 24 hours of each other, one was Deloitte and the other was quite golden. Both came as a result of networking. Didn't actually hit apply now or do anything that remotely relates to an application for either of those jobs. One, the Deloitte role. There was a partner from Deloitte who attended a female engagement dinner that the brigade commander had hosted. And she got sat next to it close to the dinner my right-hand woman at the time who was invited to dinner and another female colleague who knew I was leaving and both mentioned me by name. So she was not surprised when I then reached out asking for a bit of advice. What I thought was going to be a coffee and a chat about consultant turned into a tell me about a time when. Suddenly realised halfway through my season salad I was being interviewed. And the other, a chance conversation with the Army's, or the MOD's press officer in Northern Ireland who simply asking how things were going said, you should speak to my mate so-and-so. She's a headhunter. I did, and a couple of months later, she phoned me up to say, are you still looking? I think I found a job that would be ideal for you. So as I say, neither of the jobs I got offered at the end of my resettlement process was anything other than simple networking. But I say, we could probably talk about networking and the value of it later. In terms of skills, the Army lives by six core values. Courage, both moral and physical. So if you hire a veteran, you're hiring someone who is going to be courageous in both the moral and physical space. You're probably not going to need him or her to use their physical courage too often but moral courage goes back to that hard HR that we talked about earlier Craig that ability to make tough decisions you will literally be dealing with someone who has at some stage in their career whether they've had to use it in anger or not been trained to make a decision within a split second to pull a trigger and kill someone now as I say the vast majority haven't had to do that in anger but they will have that ability to just say quickly these are the issues, these are the things that we need to think about, this is the situation, the environment, the context, whatever, here's the decision, in a way that would utterly paralyse other people who have not had that training. Integrity is a big core value, so you know, being able to do the right thing on a difficult day and just do it, not pull a sickie, that I think is a value that they would just come ingrained with. Respect for others, particularly hardwired with that before we went to places like Afghanistan. There will certainly be some listeners of a certain age in Northern Ireland who will not have seen the military act in a manner that was consistent with respect for others, probably because it's from a time when that wasn't necessarily a thing. I can assure you now, the people leaving the military now will have been eating and sleeping and breathing these core values and respect for others is a big one, particularly when you go abroad. So again, you're coming at a kind of equality and diversity thing that again is probably a bit of a myth in the army. Day one of your time in the military, you will turn up for basic training and there will be people from all across the UK male, female, all across the BAME spectrum, and probably even people from elsewhere in the Commonwealth who join. So I've served with people from Fiji, from Jamaica, from South Africa, from Canada, from Zimbabwe. The military is a lot more sort of mixed and multicultural than perhaps people would think. And certainly some news recently, again, going back to where we get our ideas from, 
the useless white male pilots quote that's come out of another RAF faux pas in regards to their recruiting. The military is a very, very diverse organisation. So you're going to be hiring someone who comes at diversity as a business as usual thing. You know, they, they appreciate and understand the value of working with people from all across the sort of social divide. Alex Ferguson does a good line on it. He said, you can't win a football match with 11 goalkeepers. Someone once said to me, well, you can't lose a game without with 11 goalkeepers. I said, well, <laughs> the purpose isn't to draw every game. The purpose is to win the Cups. But you need the diversity. You need the outfield players. Gavin, let's not talk about Manchester United and winning Cups after the <laughs> FA Cup at the weekend. I'm a United fan, so that was painful. <laughs> that might be a sore subject. That understanding that he obviously had, and he writes about it in his book, Leaders, that you had to go across the world and get the best talent. The, the military already understand that. They've been doing that for decades. So you're getting someone who's got already a great degree of respect for others, so they'll fit into the workplace quite nicely. They're loyal. I spent 20 years loyal to the Crown, to the Queen, to my employer. Really, it was loyalty to the people around me and to the organisation, first and foremost. So you'll get someone who has got that ingrained, innate sense of loyalty and selfless commitment. You know, you're talking about someone who, again, it sounds cliched about the military, but who has literally written a blank cheque and handed it across for their life. You go, you know, 18-year-olds deploying operations, making wills. There are no 18-year-olds in other businesses writing wills, writing the last letters home to their parents in case something happens. You know, lasting power of attorney and things like that were all stuff that my team had to deal with. I can certainly remember one of our fatalities in Afghanistan, having to write a brief for the Secretary of State for Defence. He was killed, Bobby and Matthew Hatton was killed alongside two other guys who were carrying him out of a building at the time. My team knew him much more personally than I did. They'd lived with him, they'd went for dinner, went for drinks, socialised with him, and they were sat in the, the tent in Camp Bastion crying. That doesn't happen in a normal business on a day-to-day basis. People who are dealing or able to deal with really high-pressure, stressful events and just get on with it, you just crack on. So yeah, aside from the values, that can-do attitude, probably again one of my weaknesses is that I don't say no often enough. I'm being coached by the two owners of my business and I've got a business coach as well who are saying you you can't do everything. If you try, you'll end up with mediocre for all the things that you eventually do rather than really, really good quality stuff, the things that matter. But you generally get from a veteran, someone who doesn't see something as impossible, quitting and laying down at the side of the road just isn't an option. So you've got people who are actually far more mentally resilient than perhaps they're given credit for. As I say, you're talking about folk who've dealt with some really, really stressful events. Your patrol is interrupted by an explosion that's just killed one of the guys and injured another two. And then the enemy has taken that opportunity to also open up a small arms fire and you know, fire rifles at you. That's a pretty bad day out. For a lot of folk, that was a fairly common day out for six months when they were serving in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. If they can deal with that, they can definitely deal with the three o'clock meeting being pushed back to half four. Yeah, I think there's a thing about resilience versus adaptability as well. And I'd say they have both. You know, the ability to tough it out in difficult situations, but also the ability to not sit in a difficult situation doing things the way that is creating the difficult situation but actually to change things and you look for right what can we do to move past this problem so they probably got both i think you know we talk a lot about resilience and training people on resilience but sometimes do we need to think beyond actually just being able to suffer the circumstances that we're in and actually start to think about what you talked about before problem solving moving past that situation yeah. I mean, it's funny. I said when I started this job five years ago that I would certainly give it two years. And I would do that, my first job out of the military, because that was a typical officer's posting cycle was two years. So even if you got posted to a location that you or your family didn't want to be in, or the job just wasn't as exciting or as good as you hoped it would be, or whatever the, the thing was, I was fortunate I didn't have any issues like that. But I know some soldiers were certainly posted to locations they didn't want to be in. They just tough it out. So I thought, well, if I can tough it out in the military, I can tough it out in the commercial world because I'm going home every night and I'm getting better paid for it. And here I am five years later. So, yeah, there's an element of that just ability to, you know, when you've been made to sit in a cold, wet hole in training overnight, you can do that. You can do much other, much easier things that take that mental resilience to get through. So, yeah, I think that dispels the myth in some respects. There is no mental resilience. There's oodles of it. And it's actually a value that can be added to an employer's business because you will get people that, yeah, they won't be flaky. They won't say, saw this, I'm not going on a Monday. They will put up with it. Yeah, okay. 
There's a few things that you've mentioned so far that I want to come back to. There's quite a few things that you've mentioned that I want to come back to, but I'm going to have to pick, you know, the ones that I think really stand out. I think you talked about that can-do mentality. And at the time when you mentioned it, you talked about how the chances are they probably have done these things in the past. So they're not just saying, I can do that. They probably have the experience. But I can imagine, even if they haven't, they've probably got the sort of belief in themselves or in the situation to know that they can learn how to do it. So they'll push themselves forward, I would imagine, and know that they can learn how to get things done, even if they don't know how to do it. Would that be right? I think absolutely correct in that there's so many of the things that you get taught in the military that just aren't commonplace. You won't have done them before you joined. We used to talk about adventurous training in the military being a really great training tool to stretch people beyond their kind of comfort zone. A lot of people who've not been in the military would perhaps look at going scuba diving, sailing, parachuting as a bit of a jolly. Actually, more often than not, you've got guys and girls doing that who are utterly terrified of heights or utterly terrified of the sea or whatever it happens to be. And putting them in a controlled environment like that, you know, whether it's halfway up a cliff or whatever it happens to be, down a cave, getting them out the other side, just, again, imbues them with that sense of belief that they can overcome fear. It's important because the battlefield is a scary place. See, I was fortunate enough not to be involved in any sort of contact. I, mean, I joke that Ross Kemp has been in more contacts with the enemy than I have when he was out filming series and you know, they were, they were shooting him. <laughs> Certainly being in Afghanistan and doing things where the nervousness goes up. You're in the vehicle alongside the Nari Bugra Canal and the guys are pointing out where a device was found the previous week, dug in in a situation that was utterly designed to push a vehicle into the canal and drown the occupants. You suddenly realise you've never been in this particular type of vehicle before and you're not quite sure where the emergency escape levers are on the doors because it's not going to float. So there are times like that where you then have to trust in your equipment, trust in the people round about you, trust in the training that they've got. And it comes back to that point that you made very early on, Craig, that a lot of this is about trust and psychological safety, which again is something that I think is perhaps missing in a lot of businesses because they don't invest the time. They can't invest the time and energy in training people to that kind of level where they all just know what the man or woman left and right of them is going to do in a particular situation. But that's definitely something that I think is commonplace in the military and therefore it just does give you that sense of belief. You don't need the Ted Lasso believe sign above your door. (laughs) It's there already. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So look, another point that you made, and this was back at the start of our conversation, you talked about how, you know, Some people have said if the army was a business, it would be a top performing FTSE 100 company. But I picked up on something that you said when you said, but we would probably run it differently than a typical FTSE 100 company. So what would be different? The army is obviously not there to make profit. It's there to solve problems. So I've always been, it's a live topic now. and has been for many years, the state of defense procurement. I think when I say that, it probably wouldn't be a top performing 100 company very long. (laughs) They don't think in terms of profit. It's not a thing. You know, that a lot of your listeners will have heard the phrase time is money. The army tweaked that to time is ammunition. You know, it's something you can actually use for your benefit. But we don't think in terms of profitability. That's not to say that veterans can't. I think we've already covered the fact that they've got an entrepreneurial problem solving mindset. And I think the you know the, the adaptability that we've just talked about means that they will learn to become very commercially savvy in no time at all. Certainly more so than I'm seeing. Some of my young lawyers, for example, don't know what commercialism even really means. They want to solve client matters and deal with the legal nuance of their issue, but they're not necessarily thinking about how much money that makes us. You know, when they tell me I'm oh, really busy, I'm saying, oh, I can hear a cash register ringing, you know, get back to being busy. So I think it's something that people can adapt to, but I don't think it's something that the army's necessarily got. So if you were hiring a veteran, you would be well-versed or well-versed. You'd be time well spent explaining to them that the purpose of the company, if it's a, you know, private sector for-profit organization is ultimately to make money. You know, it's interesting though, because you say that they wouldn't be focused on profit. I totally get that. I'm not focused on profit. It's not why I do what I do. But when you think about short-term success versus long-term success, I would say, you know, I have no evidence behind this. It's just a personal belief. But I would say that companies that are successful long-term are successful long-term because of excellence and because of what they offer the world as opposed to just being focused on profit. And therefore, you know, if you as a business owner are just thinking about maximum profits right now today, you know, I would say that business has less legs in it than actually a business that's thinking about how can we be the best that we can be in the market? I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's more to it than just simply how much profit. I mean, the old adage, 
turned over as vanity, profit is sanity, but cash is reality. I mean, that's why cash is king. It's that kind of commercialism that I say I don't think a lot of veterans have immediately got their head around, could do. In terms of strategic thinking, you know, thinking forward and, and thinking what the future needs to look like in five years' time, yeah, a lot of them will be all over that. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's more than just simply the money. Money does make the world go around to a certain extent. Mm. But oh, absolutely, yeah. You've got to look after the pennies for the pounds to eventually and ultimately take care of themselves. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, I can imagine that is an area, you know, if we think about that then, just, you know, for the last few minutes of this episode then, around what are the things that someone transitioning from a military career most needs to learn or how, you know, can they help themselves, but also how can businesses help them with the areas that they do need to adjust? Yeah, I mean, they need to understand the power of networking. I mentioned earlier on, you know, the fact that my two job offers came from networking opportunities and not from applications. They need to understand, firstly, the penny drop light bulb moment for me when it came to networking was I got introduced to a guy who immediately I sort of apologised to and said, Alan, I'm really sorry, I can't offer you anything in return for your advice. And he sort of looked at me quizzically and said, why do you think you would need to? I said, well, is that not what this is all about? It's that kind of quid pro quo of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, vice versa. He said, no, it's the simple premise of pay it forward. I'm helping you today. You will help someone else another day. They will help someone else who will help someone else who will help someone else who may one day be the person that helps me. Mm-hmm. Ah, so <laughs> you've got to understand that it's not about favours. It's not about, you know, you give me advice and I'll give you that. You know, that's not how it works. So be bold enough to go out there and meet people. I've always said that when you get introduced to someone, try and get to new introductions from them and build your network. So certainly LinkedIn is a great platform for that. And anybody who is even remotely thinking about leaving the military can't start to build a LinkedIn profile and platform too early and everybody will leave the military at some point. So get on top of that, get introduced to people, get those people to introduce you to more people. I also say to veterans, write a patrol report for the person who introduced you. Now they'll know what that means. When you go on patrol, you write up the things you saw and you know it can get analysed someone down the intelligence line later. A quick line on the value of that interaction means that I know full well whether or not I should introduce someone to that person again in the future. So it's useful for me to then help other people down the line. It doesn't need to be war and peace. It just needs to be, Gav, thanks very much. That was really useful. So-and-so has introduced me to such and such, and I'll see where that goes. Networking is huge, and your LinkedIn profile can help massively with that. I think understand, and I mentioned it earlier, the language of business. Understand you know, what a Gantt chart is and how it's exactly the same thing as a sync matrix. It's a really simplistic example. I mean, stakeholder management would be a big thing in business if you want to give it its formal title. But you know that kind of Mantelow matrix of you know who's got the power and who's not got power, and who can be really helpful and who can't, and understanding where people are and what your role is in relation to them, and, and how you manage those relationships, is no different to what you do in the military when they call it human terrain analysis. You take over a new area of Helmand Province, and you want to know who the bad guys are because they need to be either killed or captured or who the good guys are because you need to go meet with them and find out what that area needs in terms of what the government or force can provide in terms of security, digging a new well, drainage ditches for the fields or whatever it happens to be. And in between, there will be those people that you need to keep an eye on who might go from one side to the other or who could be coaxed from being a bad guy to being a good guy. You you adjust your style with those people individually as I say, from dropping bombs on one to dropping money on the other. So understand how that plays out in business. And part of that comes from understanding the language and the lexicon that's in use. So doing an MBA or something of that ilk could be really useful because you'll start to understand a lot of the concepts and you'll be forced to think about how they apply in the military sort of setting. And then I think it's just believing yourself. The grass can be greener on the other side. It can be quite frustratingly brown at times, but it can be greener. And there's a lot of people in the military who have no intention of leaving because they don't believe that. And they end up rising to positions where they could also be the people telling other folk, oh, it's not that good out there. I get paid a lot more money than I got paid in the military. I haven't had to spend months away from home. I haven't had to move my wife and my family to a new area and they give up their job, their school, their friends. There is a lot to be said for the commercial world and obviously non-commercial opportunities just as much. It's not worse. If anything, it has been better for me. And at some stage in your military career, it will come to an end and you will be replaced on that spreadsheet with someone else with a you know slightly newer army number and the organisation will move on. 
So you do need to look after yourself and think about it and not feed it because it's definitely, for me anyway, it's been the best thing I've done. I did meet a guy a number of years ago who said to me, the two best things that had ever happened to him in his life was joining the army and leaving the army. And there is, I would echo that 100%. And I'd need to throw in there, you know, meeting the wife, having the kids and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I, joining and leaving were certainly two of the best things I've ever done. But yeah, beyond that, if any veterans were listening to this and saying, well, what can I do to try and bring all that together? If you can get placement opportunities, you know, offer to come and just shadow somebody in the business for a couple of days, even one day, just so you can contextualise what that business does and how you can tweak your CV, your offer to that thing, that would be really useful. As I say, many of them will come with CVs that could easily choke you because of the skills and experience and knowledge they've got. I often say that when it comes to my writing a job description, I'm effectively setting an exam question. And what I want to see in a CV is the answer to that question. I don't care, as impressive as it is, that you have managed to single-handedly cure cancer in your previous job. If I don't actually need someone to cure cancer in this job, I do care that the skills you used in achieving that are transferable. It's therefore, as I say, how you market yourself in that respect. How do you take that massive toolbox that you've got and pick the right tools to map across to that particular job. Half the battle with that, as I now know, is understanding what the language means in the first place. Yeah. I think businesses need to really think as well, though, about what is it that they should really be looking for in a new hire of any background? Because a lot of this stuff can be trained, can be taught, and that's the easy bit. But getting the right person with the right attitude, the right mindset, and you know all those skills can offer so much to your business. So yeah, they might not know the term Gantt chart as you used before, but okay, that sort of stuff can be taught very easily. Exactly. Everything else is so much more. You only have to look at job descriptions on the various job boards to see that some businesses haven't got the first idea what it is they even need. So the the right job descriptions that is probably a copy and paste of a previous job description. The public sector are particularly bad for it. I've seen a number of roles that I could probably fulfill with my skill set. Director of corporate services is a typical title that the likes of the councils have got. I saw one recently and it flashed up as a you know, job you may be interested in. The first essential criteria was someone who was a chartered accountant. Despite the fact that the lion's share of the job appeared to be HR and governance, well, then there's umpteen folk out there who aren't chartered accountants but have got more than enough experience and knowledge to do that. Why constrain themselves to just a chartered accountant? Well, it's because part of the job involves managing public money and there's therefore a degree of safety comes with a member of a recognised body who's chartered. But you're then limiting yourself in terms of the talent pool. I think that's the case that we've been more or less sort of discussed and trying to dispel today with veterans. If you think veterans are only coming with an ability to dig holes and kill people, you're barely even scratching a fraction of a percent of what they can really, really do. But part of it starts with making sure that you know yourself what it is you're looking for. Yeah. I'm quite fortunate. The job I'm in, I'm a sort of all things to all men, and that, that lends itself quite nicely. So I, you know, I landed my feet to a certain extent, but it's pointed to people who say I got lucky. I was really lucky that I did the MBA, that I did the courses, that I invested the time, learning the language, that I ensured that I met the right people who thought enough of me to point me in the direction. I'm really lucky that the two interviews I had, I managed to sell myself in such a way that said, yeah, he can do the job. So if that's luck, I'll take it. But you know, you do make your own luck in this world, as they say. Yeah. Okay. So in closing, Gavin, okay, I think one really important point to make is that so many businesses are struggling to attract and retain talent. Obviously, people are, I guess in the last few years, people have started to evaluate their lives and decide what they really want to do with their lives. And I think there's a knock-on effect for businesses with talent attraction, talent retention, etc. Is a veteran hire a potential solution to organizations who are struggling to do that? Absolutely. Particularly somebody who's only just leaving because they will be... I'm loath to use the word desperate, but certainly more keen and enthusiastic to take on something and see how you know pans out. Whereas maybe someone in, who's got a bit more commercial experience will be a little bit more picky or choosy. I'm certainly at a position now where I've had recruiters say, do you fancy talking to me about this job? And I've said, mm, nah, it doesn't look like a step up. I would have bitten a hand off you for that opportunity five years ago. So yeah, there's definitely an answer in terms of the idea that there are more jobs out there than there are people who want to do them. Do look at them in that respect. As I say, they've maybe got slightly less lofty ideas about what they need to be paid because they do realise that they may need to take a step back because it is a whole new career. Certainly, I had worked out that I could afford to take a fairly big step back in salary and was more than willing to do so if it meant that it was engineering, you know, a new run at a second career. So, I'm not saying you can lowball veterans, but they may be more affordable than people who've got, as I say, 
maybe unrealistic ideas about what they want or need to get paid. But you will need to feed them. You know, you'll need to give them stuff that's challenging and it keeps them motivated because that's what they're used to. So if you know, if you just want them to open and close the door behind you, don't be surprised if they leave for a better opportunity elsewhere. Yeah, and you know, on that point, just you know, final advice to companies, I would say, yeah, you might be able to get these highly skilled people for a lower salary than other people, but that doesn't mean you necessarily should because these highly skilled people are going to go and move elsewhere if you do that. So, you know, it's never good advice to lowball people and pay them less than they're worth. You know, if they're highly skilled, value them. What you're getting for your business is not cheap labor. What you're getting is a highly skilled person. So you've got to value those people. So look, Gavin, I can imagine that there's probably people out there day one having made the decision to you know move on from the military look for a career in business and they're maybe overwhelmed and they're thinking there's a lot that gavin's been able to share here it's really interesting can they reach out to you can these people speak with you about this yeah oh absolutely yeah i hold myself out as someone who sees the opportunities that are out there and knows that veterans particularly in northern ireland are being fed the line from the security side of life that you shouldn't tell people you're a veteran. My single biggest bit of advice to veteran reseller in Northern Ireland is do not hide the fact that you're a veteran. I'll give you an example, Craig, that will probably blow some people away, no pun intended. I met a recruiter who has a family background at quite a high level in Sinn Féin. And she said to me, I wish you'd come and see me three months ago, Gavin. I would have got you interviewed for head of HR at Sinn Féin. And my jaw dropped. The brigade commander's jaw dropped when I told him. I was introduced to her by a guy who's involved in the British-Irish Chamber of Commerce. So I must admit, my sort of scepticism light was illuminating on the dashboard and that she was probably saying that to appease him. I met her ops director about a year later and we got talking and when Anya said about that job, she was kind of blowing smoke a wee bit, wasn't she? He said, no, you would have absolutely been the right fit for them, at least to talk to them. And you know, they, would have, they wanted someone who wasn't going to get sucked into the politics, who was going to do the HR things. And yeah, they might have been able to play a, you know, a quality card at some point. But no, she genuinely believed, and I agreed with her, that you would have been a good candidate for them to interview. So it just showed me that there are opportunities that are out there. I'm not saying that necessarily I would have been right for the job, that the organisation would have wanted me or that I would have wanted to join them. But nevertheless, somebody saw something from an organisation has an issue. Here's a person who can be a possible solution to that. If you're going to sit there and pretend you were a civil servant or you were something else, you're not going to sell yourself properly, first and foremost. And secondly, you're maybe even going to come across as a bit of a liar. What is he or she hiding? I don't know, but I know I don't really want to find out. And ultimately, recruitment is a risk management exercise for me as a manager. I want someone to solve my problem, to answer my exam question, and I'm going to go with the least risky option more often than not, because what I don't want to do is have to deal with the problems of that individual that they bring because it turns out they can't do the job and ultimately either have to replace them or you know make sure that they can perform by effectively doing the job for them. That's ultimately what every employer wants. They want people who can come in and do a good job. If you're going to hide the fact that you were in the military, you're just giving them, even if they never work out that you were in the military, you're just giving them a reason to say no. But absolutely, if people want to reach out to me, look me up on LinkedIn, I'm more than happy to meet for a coffee or whatever, as I did with an old colleague of mine on Friday afternoon, who was about for a couple of beers, and he was picking my brains about CVs and you know my perspective on the other side of the fence, being the guy that does the hiring in some cases. So yeah, more than happy to do that. I found the resettlement process to be mentally the single most challenging thing that I've ever done to the point where my wife says, not in jest, that she thinks I've probably had a mini mental breakdown at one point because I went from highly successful army officer with a real future to facing genuine unemployment if I couldn't get a job and how the hell are you paying the bills? Seriously stressful time. So yeah, anyone who's going through that, give me a shout. We'll meet for a coffee or a beer and try and put the world to rights and see if we can get you on the right path. Or even if you're just thinking about it and you're nervous and you don't know what the first step should be, more than happy to advise on that as well. The more people that are hopefully like me, the less people will be saying, you're mad to get a job in Belfast, you should have went to London. There's no reason why Belfast can't be just like London. There can be a network of very capable ex-military that folk go, oh, you're ex-military. Well, I know Gavin that was ex-military or so-and-so that was ex-military and they're all right, so you must be all right. That's the myth that we want to create, not necessarily dispel. The idea is that you saw one, it was good. The other must be just as good, if not better. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, look, Gavin, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I hope that it has opened some minds in the business world for people to start to think about how they can solve some of their own crises, their own problems with a veteran hire. I also hope that it's given some ideas for some of those veterans that are thinking, right, now's the time. You're going to transition into a business career. It's a blank canvas. This is your moment. You've got an opportunity to paint your own future and you've got the skills. You've got the resources within yourself to be able to chart a really inspiring way forward for you. So you should be excited about this moment. Do reach out to Gavin. Thank you for coming on the show, Gavin, and being so you know honest and open with us about your experiences and about you know what we can learn from you know the military and how it can help us in business as well. I found that to be a really interesting conversation. We could have gone on for another hour, I'm sure, but we'll have to call it here. So thank you to our listeners as well. I hope you found the episode to be interesting. If you have any suggestions or ideas for the show or topics that you'd like us to explore, maybe even people you think we should interview, that could even be yourself. Do drop me an email using craig at vibranttalent.co.uk. And if your company is struggling with talent attraction, engagement, or retention, I'm also more than happy to have a chat. So you can drop me an email or check out the website, vibranttalent.co.uk. If you have enjoyed the show, I would really appreciate if you would give it a five-star rating, a follow, and a share so we can get these stories out to as wide an audience as possible, help people learn from them, and ultimately make a better working world together. That's it for this episode. See you next time.